Good lunchtime, everybody. My name's. Uh, if you, I could get you to um, take your seats, please. Uh, we'll make a start. My name's uh, David Goodman. I'm the academic director of the China Studies Centre. Welcome to the uh, annual conference of the China Studies Centre, also known as the China Fest, uh, because over these two days we're having lots of people talking about China and things Chinese. We have two public lectures today, of which this is the first. Uh, the speaker is uh, from a, a well-known renegade organization called the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. Mickey Bristow, who's been uh, living in uh, China for the last few years. Uh, he's a, probably well-known to you from your midnight listenings to um, uh, the World Service and uh, BBC and other guises. I'm not going to say very much more about him, uh, and I'll just hand over. There'll be um, time for questions and answers afterwards, and when, when we do that, please remember that this is being recorded for Sydney Ideas, so um, please do identify yourselves. But in the meantime, Mickey Bristow. Very, uh, thanks very much, Professor Goodman, for that uh, introduction, and thanks very much, everybody, for coming here today. Uh, before I start on the substance of um, what I'm going to say, perhaps I'm going to spend just a few moments introducing myself. Um, in my uh, adult career, I've had two great passions, uh, apart from my wife, of course, uh, and those are uh, journalism and China. Um, I started learning, studying Chinese uh, studies under Professor Goodman, but after university, I put it to one side for some time and became a journalist. And then later on, um, I got interested again in China. I went to work for a year on the China Daily, which is a state-run newspaper in Beijing. I then went to Taiwan for a, a couple of years to be a freelance journalist, and then went back to China um, to study Chinese language for a couple of years. In 2007, a year before the Beijing Olympics, I found myself with a job at the BBC. And um, it was a time when there was an intense uh, interest in China. Now, I, I got the job partly because of my background in Chinese uh, studies and what I knew about it already. Now, my job there for the BBC was to, was to report on all kinds of stories. Um, there's only four correspondents in China for the BBC, so we have to do everything. We report on politics, economics, uh, social events, one-off stories, uh, and what's going on with the national leadership. Anything, really, that's of interest. And my job was to report for um, all the BBC outlets, from the website, writing news stories, taking photographs, um, doing radio reports for uh, international audiences and domestic audiences back in the UK, and, of course, doing uh, TV reports as well. So that's who I am. That's how I ended up in China. And over the next half an hour or so, I want to describe to you some of my experiences there over the five years I was a journalist and some of the difficulties I encountered and also some of the great stories uh, I reported on. By the way, if you haven't noticed, that's me up there in the middle. Um, I think that story, we were in uh, Yan'an, uh, reporting on the 90th anniversary of the uh, Communist Party. I think the best place to start when I'm talking about uh, foreign journalists operating in China is the reception that they get when, when they're there. I think 
um, this photograph uh, encapsulates that idea better than, than anything. Essentially speaking, and, and being quite blunt, journalists aren't particularly welcome in China. Now, you might say that journalists aren't welcome in many places across the world, and you'd be true about that, but there is a substantive difference to how journalists are treated uh, in China, to how they're treated in uh, more open and freer societies. In Western countries, for example, like Australia, the UK, America, journalists aren't just tolerated, they're generally accepted to be part of the landscape. And there are all kinds of news sources um, that, that journalists have access to. There are parliamentary sessions, courts, uh, press conferences by all kinds of independent organizations. In China, that's not the case. Journalists, a good journalist as far as the Communist Party is concerned, is one who helps them spread their views, their opinions and their policies, not one who challenges them. And so any foreign journalist, or indeed any Chinese journalist that tries to question what's going on in China will soon find themselves in conflict with the party, in conflict with the state, and that's the kind of situation they'll encounter. I've lost count of the number of times a police officer or a security guard like that or even just an official has put their hand in front of a camera. Essentially, they don't like us. Now, there are many different ways, though, in which the Chinese authorities can be unwelcome towards journalists, and I'm going to outline a few of those over the next few minutes. This became something of a standing joker at the BBC Bureau in Beijing. Um, if you want an interview, send a fax. There can't have been a day go by uh, without the BBC, uh, somebody from the Bureau, calling the Chinese government, some department or other, asking for an interview, asking for some information, or just wanting an answer to a query. Now, most of the time when we'd ring up, uh, no one would answer the phone. There were hundreds of people employed there. I'm not quite sure what they were doing, but they wouldn't pick up. And if they did pick up, then their standard answer was, if you want an interview, send a fax. So we would uh, diligently spend half an hour or so composing a very formal letter and a, a list of questions, and we would send it off, and that would be the last we'd hear about it. Uh, we would never, we would never really um, uh, get a response from anyone uh, in the Chinese government. In fact, in the five years that I was there, I never once interviewed a government minister. I never uh, once was allowed into a courtroom to see a trial taking place. And it's the, limit, uh, the limited access to information which is the biggest handicap for any foreign journalist um, operating in China. So what you're left with are a few press conferences a few set-piece um, events, such as the National People's Congress, that's the annual parliamentary session which takes place in China, and, of course, Xinhua, a state-run news agency. If you look at all kinds of news stories from China, you'll probably find that a third or half of them are probably sourced from Xinhua. So most foreign journalists are getting their stories um, from there. There is actually a, a funny story attached to, uh, to this particular uh, um, sending of facts. A couple of years ago, the, uh, the government, for some reason or other, decided that they would respond to faxes within 24 hours of them being sent out. And I thought this was just too good an opportunity to pass up. 
So the BBC we sent a dozen or so faxes out to all kinds of departments asking all kinds of questions and sat there patiently waiting for the responses. Now, as you can imagine, we didn't get uh, any satisfaction, but the, some of the excuses we got for why we didn't get a, a response formed a very interesting story which I did for the BBC's website. I think the best excuse we had was um, uh, one department which said that there'd been a, a power cut and so the fax machine wasn't working and they hadn't received our fax. <laughs> now this problem, a lack of information, um, well, there were a number of problems with it. The first one is that there's a real lack of information about China's political process and actually what's going on in the country and basic information about the people, like this man up there, who govern China. One of my great fantasies, uh, or journalistic fantasies, uh, in China was that one day I would see Hu Jintao appear in Hello! magazine or some other gossip column. Um, I wanted to know what he did when he went home. Where did he live? Did he have a nice sofa? Did he have a, a Labrador waiting for him with his, his uh, slippers in its mouth? Did his wife cook dinner and after dinner did they sit down and watch soap operas? I just don't know. And it would be, and I, I don't think uh, uh, Hu Jintao or any Chinese uh, uh, leader at the moment will give us an interview like that, but it would be good if we could find out. And you realize as well, or I did after a certain amount of time, that it's not just journalists that don't know what's going on in China. Uh, diplomats are in the same boat too. Um, last year I spoke to, to Jeff Raby, who was the Australian uh, ambassador to China, and I asked him if they knew any more information than we did, and he said sometimes it was like looking into a big black hole, trying to find out what goes on in China. And... Another diplomat, another ambassador, gave me uh, uh, another interesting story about this gentleman up here as well. He reported that some years ago, the uh, uh, Hu Jintao had visited Germany on a, a state visit, and um, the German ambassador to China had travelled back to Germany uh, to be uh, on this visit. And at one point, Hu Jintao was travelling from one function to another function, and the ambassador was going to spend an hour and a half in the back of a car with Hu Jintao. Now, before this happened, he was very excited. He was going to ask the president all kinds of questions, and he was really interested to, to understand what Hu Jintao would ask him, what he would make of the countryside flashing by out of his window. Well, sadly, when the German ambassador got back to Beijing and reported what had happened, he was really disappointed. He said, Hu Jintao has said virtually nothing for the entire journey. I just sat there staring ahead. <laughs> now, like any government across the world, uh, the Chinese government is also good at spinning a story, just like everybody else's. Now, the main contact a foreign journalist has with the Chinese government is through um, a, a daily briefing that the foreign ministry holds, and that's one of the spokesmen there, uh, Hong Lei. And um, at these briefings, journalists get to answer, uh, ask all kinds of questions, but I've never once met a journalist who found this event to be anything other than very, very frustrating. 
In more open countries, governments feel that they have to have a constant conversation uh, with the electorate through journalists because at some point or other they're going to need re-electing. So they give them all kinds of information. Not so in China. The authorities, the government, restrict what they tell us and they're evasive in their uh, answers to our questions. Sometimes they don't answer them. And when they do answer them, they use such uh, arcane um, communist official language that it's sometimes difficult to, to make any kind of story out of them. So not really a good source of news. And the Chinese authorities don't just try to influence um, what journalists report by um, giving answers at these foreign ministry briefings. They sometimes try to put pressure on journalists uh, about what kind of questions they ask at these briefings. And I had a particular experience uh, of this a few years ago. Um, uh, there was a time when we were asking questions about a, a lawyer, a human rights lawyer called Gao Zhisheng, who had uh, suddenly disappeared. Now, uh, day after day, um, every time there was a press conference, journalists would, would ask the same question. Please, sir, could you tell us where Gao Zhisheng is? And after a while, the Chinese foreign ministry got very annoyed about this. And one morning, as I was getting ready for work, I, I got a, phone on, a, a call on my mobile phone. It was the foreign ministry uh, requiring me to, to summon me, summoning me in for a meeting. Now, I, I went in, but I, I wasn't uh, ordered to go into the, uh, to the foreign ministry or met by some grizzled old official. I was met in Starbucks by a pretty 30-something official who was dressed immaculately and spoke flawless English. She was very polite, but her message was very tough. Stop asking questions about Gao Zhisheng because we're not going to answer them. So that's just one example of how they try to put pressure on the kind of questioning foreign journalists uh, uh, have. Now, so far... I've talked about the, the very gentle ways in which the Chinese government tries to uh, direct journalists into doing uh, what they want or trying to direct their stories. And I'm going to use this quite graphic image to describe um, another tool which the Chinese government has in its armory to stop us uh, doing things, and that's simply detention. Occasionally, um, the Chinese authorities just stop journalists going to places to try and report on the things that they want to report on. Now, this picture, um, we believe, shows a Tibetan nun who set fire to herself. And anybody who follows China must know that over the last year or so, dozens of Tibetan nuns and monks have um, set themselves aflame in protest at the Chinese government's, uh, what they see as the uh, 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 terrible rule uh, of their areas. Now, the BBC, just like every other a foreign journalist organization wants to report on this very important story. So earlier this year, um, me and two colleagues, we uh, flew to Chengdu to try and report this story. We flew to the airport, we hired a car, and our driver took us towards Tibetan areas. But as soon as we got anywhere close, we were stopped at a roadblock, taken out of the car, and held there for some time. Officials then came from a nearby city and took us back to that city where we were held for about 10 hours where we spent a long time arguing with various officials about uh, whether we were allowed to be there. Eventually we were released and sent back to Chengdu and told not to go into Tibetan areas again. 
Now, of course, we did a couple of days later. We tried another area further north, but we were followed uh, on the plane by the secret police, and as soon as we started filming in, in a village, we were once again detained and taken out of the area. Now, the thing is, this, according to Chinese rules, shouldn't happen because since 2008, the uh, government introduced new uh, regulations uh, uh, because of the Olympics in Beijing, which supposedly allowed journalists to travel anywhere they wanted in the country without having to first ask the permission that they had to do before. This story just illustrates that essentially the Chinese government ignores those rules and if it doesn't want a journalist to travel somewhere, then they just stop them going there. Actually, uh, uh, if I can just go back um, to, to that story, there was a, 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 an interesting footnote. Um, I said that we were followed by the um, uh, Chinese secret police. I know that because um, when we were driving on the second time, just before the second time we were detained, we were driving in a car, and I happened to look um, down the side of the seat, and I noticed a leather wallet. I pulled it up, opened it up, and it was the uh, identification badge for a Chinese police officer. The same officer I recognized from his fit picture who had uh, been talking to our driver earlier on that day. Um, later on, a little later on, a, a police officer gave me a call and he asked me if I'd found this badge and I, I told him that I hadn't. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get detained um, for potentially um, uh, accused of uh, stealing a, a police identification badge. Moving on, um, the Chinese authorities can always take things up a, a notch further as well. And to illustrate this point, uh, I'm going to use uh, a story I did about this man, which once again, everybody uh, in this room should know who he, he is. But for those of you who don't, it's uh, Chen Guangcheng, a, a blind a legal activist who um, represented uh, many women uh, in his home province of Shandong province who claimed that they had been forced to undergo um, uh, late abortions and sterilizations. Now, Chen Guangcheng was uh, put in prison by the authorities uh, for four years. He was released, but then he was placed under house arrest uh, in his village. And um, the BBC, like other organizations, tried to interview him. And uh, I went to try and interview him uh, late uh, last year. And uh, the, the video I'm about to show you is, is what happened, a video I produced, after we tried uh, to go and uh, interview Chen Guangcheng. So um, things got, got a little nasty, and if you just watch the beginning of the, this video, you'll, you'll see why. Along this country road in Shandong province, lives an activist who's become a focus of discontent. He's not allowed visitors. Shady figures supposedly guard him, but we're going to try to see him. The men are waiting and know exactly what to do. There are no pleasantries. When they realize we're journalists, they force open the doors and go through everything. We're told to stay put. It's a glimpse into a world many don't know exists in China. These aren't robbers. Quickly and efficiently, they're carrying out the work of the state. Now, I asked those men repeatedly who they were uh, and what they were doing there, and they, they didn't answer that question. But it seems to me they must certainly have been employed by the authorities. 
This was just too much of a high-profile case. They were well-organized. Um, they had walkie-talkies, and they were able to call in reinforcements. So they must have been uh, employed by the government in some shape or form. And the reason I showed you that video is just to, just to show you that occasionally the government does employ thugs to try and prevent journalists getting to stories. Um, and that's just a, a particular example. There are a couple of footnotes I'd like to add to that particular story. I don't want to make out that China is a very, very dangerous place because there are far more dangerous countries in the world to report on than China. Um, and in the final analysis, a foreign journalist, unless they've, if they haven't committed a crime, they will simply be deported from the country. It's far worse for Chinese journalists, um, Chinese journalists working for Chinese organizations or even the journalists who used to work for us, the BBC or other foreign organizations. They, if they anger the authorities, there are far more things that can happen to them and their life can be made far more difficult than anything that would happen to us. And a, a slightly amusing footnote, hopefully it's amusing anyway, uh, to, to that particular story. A, a few moments ago, I poked fun at the uh, Chinese security services uh, for not being perhaps as efficient as they should be. Well, sometimes journalists aren't as efficient as they should be either. Um, before going on that story, what I really should have done is I should have worked out exactly where Chen Guancheng lived and worked out the best route uh, to get to him. Unfortunately, I didn't do that, and we simply drove our car towards his village. And at one point, we became lost, and we stopped our car, and, and the driver who we'd brought from Beijing got out and walked over to a van parked by the side of the road with some men inside and uh, uh, went to ask the way. Well, some of you might have already guessed that that van with those men inside was the exact people we were trying to avoid. We'd blundered into a checkpoint and announced uh, ourselves to, uh, to those people. I should have learned a lesson there. Now, so far, um, I entitled this talk uh, the, the Joys and Difficulties of Reporting in China. And so far, I've talked about the difficulties, and perhaps it's time to rebalance that uh, somewhat. Because um, it, we have to remember, and it's worth reminding everybody, that China is still a place which is very underreported. Um, it was only a few decades ago that it was opened up to the outside world. And it was only really 10 years or so ago that foreign news organizations really started to wake up to the idea that this was an important and interesting subject, uh, country and they should, should, uh, should send reporters there to, to do what they could to report what was going on in China. So if you're patient, if you're diligent, and if you're hardworking, it's still possible to find really, well, it's definitely possible to find really interesting stories in China, particularly as the Chinese press is some hamstrung by censorship. It means that foreign journalists can sometimes uncover things that nobody else has reported. And I've entitled this slide, An Occasional Glimpse of How the System Works. And the gentleman I've uh, featured here was a, a man I spent two months trying to get to interview. He was a, uh, the leader of a county, the head of a, a county in western China. And he allowed me to spend a, a day with him, um, following him around. Now, during that day, I, I saw him uh, in his office. He slept in his office occasionally, and in the morning, he had meetings with various people who were just walking, uh, asking him to solve various problems. 
a little later he went to a quite a dull conference about uh, uh, irrigation. After that he went to a, a ceremony to launch this irrigation project and that's where I took this photograph. As you can see, Chinese politicians, just like politicians across the world, uh, know a good photo opportunity when they see it. This man, he donned uh, 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 army fatigues and got a spade and started digging for the cameras. In the afternoon, I got to see the election of uh, his deputies. So all in all, I got to see a lot about how he operates. I got to see how much power he wields in his locality, how uh, all-pervasive and powerful the Communist Party is, and um, how diligent and hard-working this, this man was. There was a couple of interesting footnotes to that story as well. Uh, firstly, the election for his deputies. Um, I was quite uh, interested and uh, a little bit baffled to see that his deputies were uh, announced to uh, party dignitaries just before they were elected. So obviously that's um, uh, election Chinese style. And um, at that particular ceremony where this irrigation project was launched again, um, I was surprised to see so many people there. There were hundreds of people there, uh, most of them from government departments, and I wondered why so many people had bothered to turn out for such a boring event. Well, a little later on, when the um, county magistrate um, uh, left his desk, I had a little look around, and I saw on his desk uh, a letter which had been sent out to uh, all government departments warning officials uh, and workers that they, if they didn't turn up to this event, then they would be uh, threatened with public criticism. So that's one way to get people to turn out. Another great thing about uh, reporting in China is everyday people. Sometimes I used to get really frustrated sat in an office in Beijing um, wondering what was going on in the rest of China and trying to find out what was going on from the government and getting nowhere. And soon I realized that if you got off your backside and left the office and tried to talk to people, usually you found out what was going on. This is a, a, a producer I went with to, to interview this gentleman. I think he was telling us about the uh, terrible situation he lived in. He had no water, running water, no electricity. But the best story to illustrate this point is this one. Um, as you can see in this, in this photograph, hopefully you can see, it's the same couple. Um, on one side there, uh, that's a wedding photograph, and on the other is a photograph I took of them uh, when I caught up with them. Now this story uh, was about um, a massive engineering project that's taking place at the moment to transfer water from the wet south to the dry north in China. It's a massive project in which hundreds of thousands of people are having to move, uh, just like uh, with the Three Gorges Dam project. And I wanted to find out what it was like to move so many people and what did these people think about uh, being moved, uh, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of miles away from their original homes. So I bumped into this couple. Now, uh, the man there had moved um, a little while earlier, about a year earlier, from one area to another area with his family. And he'd met the woman in this photograph who happened to live in the area they moved into. They'd fallen in love and got married. And this story proved uh, too tempting for the local Communist Party propaganda officials who um, publicized this story. And it was a, a national story in the end, showing just what would happen to you if you moved quietly and <laughs> easily. You, you could meet your future wife. 
a wonderful story, you might think. Uh, unfortunately, a few months later, when I um, stumbled by accident uh, into this couple, um, I spoke to this man and his family, and they were absolutely livid because they were complaining about the compensation they say they hadn't received because they'd moved. They were complaining about the corruption of local officials who they claimed had siphoned off all the money they were supposed to get. They complained about the farmland they'd been allocated, which wasn't nearly as good, they said, as the farmland that they'd had previously. And I suppose the point I'm trying to make is, once you talk to people, you get a full and clear picture uh, of what's going on uh, in China. And I think if we're talking about some of the difficulties that face China, some of journalists in China, I think some, of the, some things have got easier over the last few years. And I think we have to mention social networking and the internet in general. I know the internet isn't just uh, located in China. It's, 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 it's revolutionized the whole world. But perhaps in China, I think it's had a bigger effect than in any other country. Because the authorities have such a tight control over the established media, uh, social networking sites and the internet generally really offer, offers the only public forum for people to express their views, to, to get together, to spread information and to share information. And this has become a, a really valuable tool for journalists uh, to get hold of people and, and find out things that they just wouldn't have found out before. It's also changing, I think, the, the nature of how the Chinese government relates to, to people, to its people. You could have the impression that because China is a one-party state where there are no elections, that the, China, that the government doesn't have to be responsive to what people uh, feel and need. And I don't think you could be any more wrong. And, and social networking sites have really shown that. Uh, as one example which comes uh, quickly to mind, and that's... Um, a couple of years ago, there was a, a, a train accident on a new high-speed high speed rail line in uh, Wenzhou. And uh, initially, the government did what they usually try to do, and that's to dampen down any kind of speculation about this crash, why it had happened. But of course, with social networking sites, people express their anger, particularly when the government tried to, uh, the authorities tried to bury some of the train carriages which had fallen off a bridge. And they were, they were angry and they expressed that anger. And a week later, after this accident, uh, Wen Jiabao, the premier, traveled down to Wenzhou and he did something which Chinese leaders rarely do. He apologized. And that's widely recognized and by many people to be in a function and a result of this outpouring of anger on, on social networking sites. Now, I'm coming towards the end of what I wanted to say to, uh, today. And um, to end, I just want to focus a little bit. So far, I've talked about the how journalists collect information and uh, the difficulties and some of the uh, joys of reporting in China. But I just want to give you a few thoughts of mine on, on what I thought I was doing in China. I think there were two overarching themes. Uh, the first one was... Uh, to try and tell China to the rest of the world, because I think uh, most people here probably would agree, I hope, uh, that still people, foreigners, know little about China. China, to many people, is a mysterious place, even to educated people uh, in the outside world. And I always thought it was a, a, an important job to try and explain what was going on in China. So 
much of my reports, a large chunk of it, would be taken up with background reporting and, and context, explaining why I was reporting the story and, and, and why I thought it was important to report that particular story. So that was one overarching theme. The second is reflected in this picture. China obviously has changed dramatically over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, and, and I thought it was my job to try and explain and, and to document uh, that change. And in effect, I think that's what all journalists are doing there, to try and explain the change from uh, a radical communist uh, government to, to one in which the market is now king, albeit there's, a, there's still a communist party with a heavy hand in the economy. And perhaps just one story which illustrates, one story that I did, which illustrates my uh, att attempt to explain what's going on. Uh, a couple of years ago, I reported on one of the last uh, communes which still uh, exist in China. Um, well, communes were uh, introduced in the area of that gentleman there. And they were really self-sufficient uh, organizations in which people worked for the commune and the commune gave you everything back, your, your food, your shelter, your clothing. Uh, and they were disbanded mostly in the 80s, but a few still survive here and there in China. And a couple of years ago, I, I reported uh, on one of them. I went to see one in operation. And I thought this was an interesting and important story, not because it was a, a historical oddity, but because it, it, it told a story about what people feel about change in China at the moment. Even though, uh, even though the changes have brought more opportunities and more uh, freedoms to Chinese people, it also has brought many more uncertainties. And there are lots of people in China today that look fondly back on an era where the government would provide a safety net uh, for people if things got bad, if you lost your job or, or, or if you became ill or something like that. And the people in this commune were very happy to give their labor to the commune in return for subsidized housing, for health care, for education for their children. And there were many people in China that would like similar kind of um, social security networks. So I thought that was a, an important story to, to report on. Now to end, um, I'm going to end on a slightly controversial theme and perhaps afterwards um, it might, uh, people might want to ask a few questions about this. I mention this point because whenever I talk about being a journalist in China, one of the things which crops up often is a criticism of journalists that they report too many human rights stories. And the Chinese government certainly thinks we do that. They're always telling foreign journalists that they've got it wrong that they don't really understand China, that they're biased, and in the worst case scenario is that they've got some kind of agenda and they're anti-China. And it's not just the Chinese government that says that as well. Lots of um, educated Western people who live and understand, live in China and understand China say that. A few years ago, I remember, I was at lunch with uh, an economist from the World Bank and he made a similar criticism asking why foreign journalists report so many human rights stories. Well, I haven't got a, a definitive rebuttal to that accusation. Uh, and in one respect, you could say that journalists are biased because we all come to stories and uh, with our own preconceived ideas that have been shaped from how we were brought up and where we were taught. And so in that respect, we're not particularly objective. 
But I would like to add a few points in defense of journalists and why they report these particular stories. I think the first thing I'd like to say is that some of these stories are just wonderful stories to report. Take, for example, Ai Weiwei, an internationally renowned artist. He's had exhibitions across the world and he's used his fame and prominence to criticize the government. The government got back at him and accused him of tax evasion and thousands of people sent him money in order that he could pay the levy that was uh, laid on him by the authorities. Some even threw money over his compound walls. I would challenge anyone reporting in China not to report that story. Other stories uh, are so fascinating as well because they're classic David and Goliath stories. It's a theme which has been reported for centuries in all kinds of cultures. On the plane to Sydney a few days ago, I was watching a film about a a, a woman, uh, a doctor, who was uh, fighting against the system in East Germany at the height of the Cold War. And the story of Chung Guan Chung, the blind legal activist who I told earlier, it's a classic tale uh, of one man, one person, standing up against the government. Those are, are stories which are hard not to report. And finally, and thirdly, I think some of these stories tell us about China. Liu Xiaobo, for example, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, was sent to prison uh, in part for writing a political manifesto about what he thought should happen in China, how he thought China should change. Well, I defy anybody reporting China not to report on that story. To understand China, you have to understand what people like Liu Xiaobo are saying. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's that's the end of my lecture. Thank you very much for listening to me. Okay. Uh, Questions, comments. There's a mic here. Please come and use it and introduce. Please come and uh, well. Um, my name is Liu Chen from Business School here. Um, my question is, how do you think of uh, New York Times um, exposure on uh, Wen Jiabao's giant family wealth? I think the article was on October 26. And do you think foreign media in China is, are manipulated by Chinese government or this is a sign of the openness of the society? Thank you. Um, Well, on the first part of that question, I'm just sorry that I didn't report that story because what a great story it was. These stories are are fantastic stories to really find out, as I described in my lecture, uh, the kind of people who run China. We know very little about them, who they are, um, what they do, how they meet, how they conduct politics, how they decide policies, and we know very little about their backgrounds. One of the great issues in China at the moment, one of the great uh, concerns of people in China is corruption, about officials lining their own pockets. And so I think it's a job of journalists to try and dig out those stories and find out this kind of information. If someone is corrupt, if they've used their power illegally to line their own pockets, then I think that's that's a, a legitimate story to chase. And I thought it was a wonderful story. I wish I'd have reported it. And the timing was good too, because it came just before the um, uh, handover of power. It's unfortunate for Wen Jiabao, but unfortunately, if you're going to be a leader of any country, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of investigation you, you, you have to uh, uh, accept. 
Um, as to the second part of your question, um, is the New York Times manipulated by the Chinese authorities? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't really know the workings of the New York Times, but I, I, I'm, Times, but I'm pretty sure that they're not, apart from in ways in which all of us uh, are influenced by the Chinese government. Yes, um, a couple of questions. From your time spent, in my, sorry, my name is Anna St. Clair, I'm a member of the public. Um, what, how do you see the rate of democratic reform developing in China? You must have seen some changes, some progress. How do you predict uh, in 10 or 20 years that there will be care for the aged, for the infirm, workmen's compensation, widows, pensioners, that sort of thing? And my, sorry, my second question is, um, there was a plane that came down a few years ago that was an uh, American surveillance plane, and I remember being surprised at the level of anger from ordinary Chinese people about um, the men who were in the plane, and there was a suggestion that they should be shot. And I'm wondering if there has been encouragement from the authorities to... Uh, have an anti-American sentiment and whether that is part of an ongoing uh, future conflict about resources. Thank you. Okay, hopefully I can remember those questions. Uh, as to the first one, uh, there's certainly been an expansion of freedoms and uh, uh, individual freedoms in China. People are now able to do far more than they were able to do 30 years ago, take control of their lives by uh, finding their own jobs, living where they want, um, marrying who they want, wearing what they want, eating what they want, all these kinds of individual freedoms. But you could make an argument that on the political front there have been precious few um, developments. In fact, you could make the argument that in some cases it's gone backwards. Perhaps in the 80s there was... Um, uh, Professor Goodman would know more about this than me, but there was perhaps more debate uh, and more openness about debate about what the future would bring uh, in China. As a journalist in China, I don't see um, many political rights. People can't vote, they can't really speak out, and the authorities are just as harsh and crack down just as strongly on people if they try to do any of those things. So there's not been an awful lot of progress, but that's not to say that this new crop of leader don't have their own ideas and then at some time in the future they might surprise us. On your second question, I think you're referring to the spy plane, which is in 2000, I think it was, um, the American spy plane. I mean, this is a difficult one because the Chinese, Chinese people are nationalistic just like many people are across the world and I don't think you ought to condemn them for that um, I would imagine that if the Americans uh, had been well if a Chinese spy plane had been flying across uh, uh, California or close to the Californian coast then Americans would have got quite heated under the collar about that as well and we wouldn't be calling that anti-Chinese behavior we'd, we'd, be, we'd be saying that the Americans were just defending their legitimate sovereign uh, territory so I don't see that as uh, anything uh, really different to, to what goes on uh, in other countries and in many respects, you could say it was pretty reasonable to be quite angry at this spy plane coming so close. Um, Thomas Berghaus, I just wanted to ask, you 
talk about decision makings and how you learn through the process as well and become mobile, but also how you negotiate the powers. I was just wondering about one power because one of the things that one always asks in one encounter with China is that officialness and on that basis makes decisions. And I'm looking at the image here in which um, one image is superimposed on another image. And I'm thinking about uh, self-censorship and whether you can reflect on having encountered issues of self-censorship and having had to make decisions on self-censorship rather than always see the censorship on the side of you know, the decision makers, but indeed this personal level as well and a journalistic level as well. Um, well, as, as far as censorship goes or self-censorship, then I mean, that, that, that wasn't an issue and isn't an issue with foreign journalists. They report um, how they want to report and what they want to report. The difficulties come in, in gathering information and in actually getting to places so you can prepare accurate reports. But we do what we want to do um, without any um, interference on, on that level uh, from the Chinese authorities. The censorship comes in what we report and how that reaches our audiences. Of course, uh, the Chinese government doesn't have much sway uh, outside its own borders, but inside its own borders, occasionally uh, BBC broadcasts, the BBC website would be blocked, and um, BBC World is available uh, in some places inside China, um, not widely, but in some places. But if there was a report on there which the authorities didn't like, then uh, suddenly the screen would go black uh, and it would be censored in that way. So that, that was the way the censorship worked. Uh, as far as self-censorship um, uh, uh, goes, there is a lot of self-censorship that uh, happens, and I've got some experience of that because I used to work or I worked for one year on the China Daily, which is the state-run uh, English-language newspaper in China, and I was a sub-editor there, basically checking stories written by Chinese journalists. And there's a lot of self-censorship there because uh, in China, one of the great difficulties with censorship, I feel, is that there isn't a, a distinct line which people know they can't cross. It's a very grey area, and the government keeps it deliberately grey because they want people to practice self-censorship. So a journalist working for a state-run news organisation, they would be very circumspect in their language and perhaps more circumspect than they would have to be because they didn't want to cross this line. And so it's a very useful tool by the authorities um, to keep people guessing where, where this line is. Of course, if you cross it, then the authorities come down very hard on you. Uh, John Clark, Art History, University of Sydney. Um, I'm very interested in the situation of journalists in China in particular. Um, how do you inoculate yourself against the level of mendaciousness which is institutionalized in the media space? I've only spent maximum four months in China and I lived in other countries which have quasi-totalitarian systems of information available to the population, but I've never been in a country, the only country I can imagine is the United States having to listen to Foxtel compulsorily 24 hours a day, or um, in, uh, if you watch the adverts for the PLA, they are, I think, Hollywood meets Nazism uh, in terms of propaganda mode, but for a journalist who's got to live there and has to report on that, 
how do you inoculate yourself? How do you manage to keep yourself going? Um, well, I've left China, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's eventually, um, I was in China for nearly eight years and, um, and one of the reasons I decided to leave uh, with my family was because um, as a journalist there with the constant conflict that you get from the authorities and the constant reassessing of your own um, reporting and uh, constantly looking at what you do and whether you're doing the correct thing and whether you've got things right eventually does wear you down. Uh, and journalists, of course, always report on the bad things in life and uh, uncovering some of the nastier elements of uh, human existence. And so eventually that wears you down and you need a change. And uh, so I left. That's how I dealt with it. Um, but I wouldn't, I'd like to add as well that I wouldn't just focus on the bad things because hopefully from my lecture you've got some idea that it's not all bad. There are some wonderful stories out there about people building new lives and trying to find new ways of living and to, to hear those stories and to hear how they uh, are trying to, to build new lives is, is a wonderful privilege and um, you know so it, it wasn't all bad and it was a, a fantastic experience. Uh. Thank you, so, uh, Michael. Um, my name's George. I'm from Cambridge Usit. Uh, my question is um, to, from your work experience as uh, foreign journalists in China or for years, um, do you believe that the editorial independence in China for the domestic like journalists has been proved? Because you see that most of the journalists now in China can correct like some of the corruptions or something, or do you, like? And do you believe that the netizens, the booming, the netizens in China are forcing or maybe becomes a major force that can prove such editorial independence in the future? Thanks very much. Um, well, taking the second part of your question first, I mean, as I said in my um, lecture, I do believe that the, um, uh, the internet and social networking sites particular, because they're very hard to censor, because they... they, they messages appear so quickly that it's hard to get rid of them before they've been spread around the internet. So I do think that's changing the shape um, of um, journalism in China. Uh, and what happens is sometimes you get a story on social networking sites, it might be picked up by the foreign media, and if it gets enough traction in China and enough people in China are talking about it, then eventually the established media outlets, Chinese media outlets, have to report on it too and have to, um, have to reflect what people are saying. So uh, in one way, social networking sites are opening up um, more stories to, to Chinese journalists. But as far as um, independence, editorial in independence goes, I still feel that the uh, propaganda, the party's propaganda department still keeps quite a, a tight rein on what um, uh, certain journalists, on what basically journalists report, or on what uh, political line uh, that newspapers and other media organizations um, take. Having said that, there are a couple of um, exceptions, um, Cai Jin and Cai Xin, uh, the business magazines, they for some reason seem to get away with reporting more stories than other people. And there are a number of very, very good Chinese journalists that um, even if their own um, uh, organizations don't publish their reports, sometimes they publish them on the internet. So very uh, uh, brave and, and 
great uh, Chinese journalists who do that. So that's also changing uh, the journalistic landscape in China. Hi, Michael. Um, my name's Katrina. I'm a journalist with SBS World News Australia here. What do you think about the expansion of CCTV English as a global channel and the moves to open bureaus across Africa, across Europe? What do you think is the motivation behind this? And do you think any good real journalism will come of it? Well, I think the motivation behind it is simple. Um, the Chinese government uh, often um, complains that it doesn't get its message across to the outside world. It believes that journalists like me are prejudiced, uh, are biased, and are just seeking to you know, pull China down and for our own particular agendas. And so they feel that their message gets distorted through uh, the foreign journalists. So the answer to that question, the answer to that problem is to appeal directly to foreign uh, people directly. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that's the reasoning behind um, the expansion of uh, CCTV and other Chinese media organizations um, across the world. They just want to get their message directly into the homes uh, of foreign people without uh, us journalists uh, distorting that message. But uh, they're paying an awfully large price for that, and, you know, billions and billions of, uh, of dollars. And ultimately, I, I, don't think, I don't think they will succeed in, in getting their message across because if you don't really have uh, proper editorial independence, then people around the world, people are not stupid. They know when a story um, is being distorted, twisted, or is, is simply propaganda. And so I, I feel ultimately they will fail in that experiment. Um, Peter Stapleton, um, manager of a Australian law firm in China for a few years and tourist there since 1980. Uh, two things. Uh, I've found the Chinese individually since 1980 are very open about expressing their ideas, values, and about the country they live in. Uh, but then when those, that gets linked together with others, so there's a movement that the Chinese government then will come down and control it. So you have an individual expression of ideas and when it spreads, it's controlled by the government. Uh, do you agree with that? And secondly, how much is the anti-Japanese movement controlled by the government or just deep set in many Chinese youth with, uh, supposedly in the demonstrations as shown by? On what your first question was now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people do. I mean, Chinese people, like anybody across the world, they, they've got opinions about things and they like to express them. But of course, uh, it's dangerous thing to do to express your uh, opinions in public. It still is, uh, and so most people don't um, cross that line. And the authorities have a, 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 a shifting scale of uh, punishments and warnings that they can give to officials or, or anybody who speaks out. So, for example, if I just take one example, the Charter 08 uh, manifesto that Liu Xiaobo um, helped draft, calling for political reform, a number of uh, Chinese intellectuals um, added their name to that document. And, uh, and afterwards, they were all... Every one of them, um, I believe, or, or a large amount of them, were, were warned by their, initially by their um, Danway, by their work unit or wherever they worked. They would be called into the office by their uh, official and said, you know, you need to take your name off this document. If they refused, there were then other things that could happen to them. They could find they 
maybe were sacked from their job or um, exiled to different parts of China. And, you know, eventually if people persist, then they, there are other measures against them. They can be eventually prosecuted. So there's a whole range of things that happen to people if they persist in expressing their opinions in public. And few people get away with it. Um, Ai Weiwei got away with it for quite a long time because he was such a, a, a public figure. I'm asked to your second question about um, uh, anti-Japanese movement. Um, I think there's two aspects to that story. Uh, one is there is a genuine, um, uh, a genuine and heartfelt and uh, anger towards Japan because of what it did to China during the Second World War. And there is a feeling within China that Japan hasn't properly and adequately apologized for that, and it ought to do that. And often they hold up the example of how Germany has apologized correctly and Japan hasn't. So I think some of the anti-Japanese sentiment is genuine and heartfelt. Of course, the government does um, allow that movement um, off the leash slightly when it's politically uh, expedient to do so, and it reins it back in um, uh, when it goes too far. I think a couple of years ago there was, um, I forget now, I think it was um, the, uh, uh, just before the Beijing Olympics when there was a lot of demonstrations when the, the torch uh, went around the world and there was a particular anger at France that the, France had announced so many demonstrations against the torch and there were all kinds of demonstrations against French companies, Carrefour, supermarket particularly and those demonstrations were allowed to go on to a certain point and then the authorities moved in and stopped them when they looked as though uh, they were getting too uh, out of hand. Uh, Susan McGrath-Champ, um, Working Organisational Studies here at the Business, uh, University of Sydney. Um, you're, you've mentioned working in Tibet and being forcibly removed from there. And the flyer that advertised your talk to, uh, mentioned um, you reported on an earthquake and other uh, outbreak of plague and so on, other quite um, dangerous circumstances. And um, I have an interest in that, that aspect of your work because I'm doing a study with another colleague on emergency evacuation provisions um, and the media and journalist um, sector is one that figures quite prominently in our, as we've found, because you do work in often hazardous circumstances. I'm wondering whether in your time in China or at, or at any other time in your, your career you've actually been evacuated for sake of natural... Um, hazard, plague, uh, so health or, or um, political uh, un unrest, and what that process has involved, whether it differs in, in your experience in China to elsewhere? Um, well, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to give you a satisfactory answer because I, I've only mainly reported uh, as a foreign journalist in China, so I don't have any other experience. But, I mean, what I can say is that usually when people are going on a plane out of a disaster area, journalists are going on a plane into the area. So, you know, there's no point, you can't report on something. Just take, for example, the, the Wunchuan earthquake. You can't report on an event if you're not... At, actually there. So you have to uh, put yourself in, in some harm's way and, and put yourself at some risk because otherwise you just wouldn't get the story. And so uh, unless the situation was um, very, very serious, someone who was seriously injured or seriously ill, 
then you wouldn't be evacuated. You would have to stay uh, and do your story. And to be honest, most journalists wouldn't want to be evacuated unless they were seriously ill because most of them are dedicated to getting the story out and um, they, they want to be where the story is.